Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. Well, dear friends, uh, I'm glad to be back. I had a, a nice uh, Sunday last week at our Mecca campus and uh, had wonderful services, great people. You know, it's always a, always a joy to be up there, but I miss you when I'm not here. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to get back into uh, our sermon series on what is the church, uh, and today we're going to find out that it is the bride of Christ. And I Yesterday, or last, yesterday afternoon, Beth was kind of working on her Sunday school uh, lesson, uh, filling in the blanks and things that she does with that. And, uh, you know, you, you don't bring good messages and lessons unless you spend time in them. You, you knew that, right? I would think that you do. And, uh, and because it, it, there's more than just information there, okay? You could pick out and put together a message or a lesson, but the information isn't, isn't everything. You're going to need examples. You've got to put personal experience into it. And you got to show people things that God is teaching you as you've prepared it, which is very important. And, and I was making uh, uh, cream and mushroom soup yesterday. Anybody like cream and mushroom soup? Yeah, yeah, good stuff, yeah. And no, I didn't send you all a bowl of it. But I, first of all, I couldn't probably make that much. But anyway, uh, I, was, I, was, I was putting it together, and, and my mind wasn't really on the cream and mushroom soup, believe it or not. Uh, I, I've done it so many times, I kind of know what goes in it. And so I don't really worry about, you know, and I don't measure much, I just dump, you know. And so I was dumping this stuff in, and I was thinking, and, and my mind was on today, and this message, the bride of Christ. And it dawned on me as I was doing it, my mind started going back on the whole of my ministry, you know, nearly 30 years now. And as I was looking at all the couples that have come to me and asked me to marry them, I didn't, I didn't say yes to all of them for a variety of reasons. And some people might think that's kind of mean. Because we have this idea that, that if you go to a minister and ask to be married, they ought to just automatically do it. Well, it doesn't work that way. Because some people aren't ready. <laughs> Agreed? Let's face it. How many of you were really ready when you got married? Probably none of us was, right? We thought we were, though. Yeah? And so, and, and you know, friends, marriage is, it, 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 well, it's a big deal. It's an important thing. I mean, do you realize that you're going to be with this person to the end of life? That's, isn't that really what the goal is? Isn't that really what the rule is? Now, it has always happened that way. I certainly know all about that. But here's what I will tell you, that that is what it was designed to be. And, and you know, uh, my, my friend Larry and, and, and Dale Moore, this is, this is a story I tell a lot. I remember they used to tell us a story of how, you know, when he was a youth pastor and she was a youth worker down in the Carolinas, uh, and uh, he saw her and thought she was pretty cute, and she thought he was pretty handsome, but she thought he was going here and there, and she was going there, so she didn't think much about it. And so, so anyway, he, came, he asked her out. And uh, as soon as he asked her to go out for pizza, he said, let's go out for pizza. And she said, well, I'm not going to marry you. And he said, well, that's good, because I asked you to go out for pizza. 
right? But see, but see, gals sometimes, when, when, you, when you ask them out, the first thing they do is consider, could I see myself married to this individual? Could there be, you know, over time, would I, could I see myself developing a relationship with this person and eventually leading? Isn't that why we date? Now, some people don't date for that reason. Agreed? Some people date for a variety of other reasons. Uh, and not, not, I don't think we need to get into that today. But here's the thing. Every single couple I've ever put together, every single couple has come to me. I didn't say yes to all of them. Most of them I did. But there were usually one or two conditions, <laughs> right? If, if you're willing to go through marriage counseling with me, premarital counseling, then I will consider it, okay? If you have no interest in being a Christian or living a Christian life and keeping that as a part of your marriage, then I probably won't marry you. Because I'm a Christian minister, and, and, and that's what we do. I believe in the Christian principles to keep a marriage together. Because I can tell you this, without Christian principles in your marriage, it is, is 70% more doomed to fail. And those aren't, those aren't my statistics. That's national statistics. Okay? Christian marriages where Christian principles are incorporated last way more, hugely more than those without it. Did you know that? How many of you believe it? Okay, so here's the deal. So when people came to me, I had a decision, a decision to make, and so do they. These are my rules. And they think, it's, first of all, guys don't want to go through counseling. Have you ever noticed that? Men, the, the gals do, but men usually don't. But I haven't had one couple in all that time tell me, well, that was terrible. I didn't like it. In fact, most of them say it wasn't what I expected. I really enjoyed it. Now, how many of you have, have I counseled premaritally? Anybody dislike it? You ain't going to tell me now, anyhow. Right? But, but weren't you kind of pleasantly surprised? Right? Because the deal is, let's find out what the obstacles to a marriage are and how to deal with them. Yeah? What are the problems in most marriages? And so we, we go through that. And people usually enjoy it. And so I began to think about all the couples that I put to, all the couples that came to me and those that I said yes and I, and I put them together. I give every single one of them the opportunity to write their own vows to the other. Now, not very many do it, really, because they're afraid to do it, you know. And I've had some that wrote them and forgot them when they got up there to get married, which I always make sure I have a copy of their vows just in case, right? But let me tell you this. Those that wrote their vows literally nearly put me to tears, both of them. You know why? Because they're, they're telling the other why they want to do this. Isn't that what vows are? Vows are why I want to spend the rest of the life that I have on this earth with you. This is why I chose you. This is why I want to be with you. And I'm so delighted that you chose me and feel the same. Isn't that what a marriage is supposed to be like? I mean, isn't that what we do? And I tell almost every couple, whether I've married them here, I've married a few at Maryland and other places, and, I, and at the White Chapel, you know, listen. This is what I tell all couples. Nobody stands up there in the sight of God and all the witnesses and the minister putting them together and says, well, I'm going to get married today, but I think in just a few years I'll get a divorce. Nobody thinks that. It happens, but nobody thinks it. Amen? That's not the goal. Never has been the goal. And, and if it is the goal, then there's a more sinister reason why they're getting married in the first place. But this, this is important that you understand what a marriage is. People want to spend their life with someone who's their best friend, somebody that they can count on, 
somebody that can uh, be that person that they go to when there is nobody else. Somebody to rely on, to invest in. You know, we say to have and to hold, right? You know, the, the intimacy part is only a section of it. There's way more than that. And, but this is the reason we do it. And, and when we don't have it, we crave it. Most do. There's a few that don't. And you know why you crave it? Because that's the way your maker made you. God puts you together as a, as a human individual to want someone, get, hear me now, of the opposite sex. And to be with them in a relationship. That's how God built you. That's not how we're doing it necessarily, but that's how God built you. I know that because the Bible says so. Okay? Clearly says so. So God created us to want to be with someone of the opposite sex in a marriage relationship for eternity. You understand that? That's what he did. And so I began to think about that, and then I looked at the verses that God put on my heart to teach you about today. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 21. I'm going to do the NASB today because it's a direct translation. And really, uh, I like the way that, that Paul puts this together. And, and Paul is unbelievable in this as the Spirit uses him to pen these words. The bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, friends, the Apostle Paul, again, like I said before, is brilliant in this passage. Now, I realize that the Holy Spirit is who's actually written it. He's just using Paul as the instrument just as Paul is using the pen as an instrument, right? I mean, sometimes we have thoughts, but putting them on paper is a different thing. Agreed? You know, sometimes articulating them into words is a different thing. But we, we, we know what we want to say, but we're, we're worried that it's going to be perceived the way we, we mean it. And see, Paul had to worry about that too, but not as much as you and I, because the Holy Spirit was telling Paul, write this down. And so he does. And he uses an institution that is ordained of God and is sacred before God. And that institution is marriage. When you, when you come into the ministry, when you, when you aspire to ministry, you, you start into a program, you start into a journey where little by little you get more authority in the things you're able to do. Almost immediately you begin to study, and then shortly after that, you begin to teach probably. 
But you cannot bring the sacraments to people until you reach a certain place in your studies where you understand what they are and why we do them. Marriage is one of those sacraments. In fact, you can bury the dead well before you can put together a marriage. You can't baptize. You can't marry. And you can't serve the sacraments in communion until you reach a certain point that we call in the Western Church licensure, or you've had enough study under your belt that you understand what those things are and why. You know why we do that? Because people will throw them around too easily. That's why. And sometimes you have to say no to people on all three. If someone's heart isn't right, can I offer them communion? Yes, but God admonishes that they have the right heart. So I've got to recognize things in them that maybe show me that they're not and say, listen, I'm going to serve this to you, but I'm going to tell you that the Bible says you must take this only with a contrite heart. And so if you don't have a contrite heart, I wouldn't if I were you. That's, that's my responsibility as a minister. Am I right, Pastor Chris? He does. Uh, marriage, shouldn't, shouldn't I make a determination? See, I've actually had people tell me, well, you're, you're a minister. You have to marry. No, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. In fact, no one can force me to marry a, a, a couple. The church can't. The board can't. The DS can't. And why would we? Why would we ever tell a minister, you have to marry these people? Because it's on me to make sure that I've given them everything I can, right? To have a good one. That they're ready. That they know why. And I ask every single one of them, why do you want to marry this person? And they better be able to tell me. Or we probably aren't going to go down that road very long. The same is true with baptism. If someone doesn't know what baptism is, why would I, why would I baptize them? Because people want to get baptized because they understand what it is and why they're doing it. Otherwise, it's just a dunk in the tub. That's all it is. It's worthless. See, that's why we have to understand the depths of these things before we can be ordained or licensed to do them. And so Paul uses this, one of these sacraments, this institution called marriage. And unfortunately, in, in our society today, all around the world, we're wanting to cheapen the institution of marriage. Now, I'm not telling you that because you didn't know it. And I'm not telling you that because I'm trying to make you feel bad today. I'm simply calling your attention to the fact that we've done it. And yet that's the basis of what Paul is telling us is our relationship to Jesus Christ. Kind of important, isn't it? If marriage is to be a forever thing, isn't salvation to be a forever thing? Yes. And that's exactly what he's saying. In fact, Paul is describing what human marriage relationships ought to be, but really that's not what this passage is all about. He uses it, but that's not what it is all about. In fact, he's mainly using it as an example of what our spiritual relationship to God ought to be. That's what he's actually telling us. Marriage was once more sacred and special to people than it is now. It was more special to people of old of years past than it is now. 
I know that based on the divorce rate. Anybody with me? People stayed together before a lot quicker and more easily than they do now. You know why? Because we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for the other, and today we are not. Why? Because the devil is teaching us in every home in the world, you're number one. Get what you deserve. Worry about yourself. That's what he's teaching us. You know it. I don't have to tell you that. You know it. And if you don't think it, you're living in a hole somewhere because it's happening. Okay? So that's why our marriages are falling apart faster than you ever had before because we're not putting as much emphasis on them and we're certainly not putting the work into them like we used to. There was a time people wouldn't do it, wouldn't get divorced. They would do whatever it took to make, keep it together. Okay? Now listen. They knew that when you married somebody, it was for life. You were part of that person, and they were part of you for eternity. You were bond, bonded together in every way, and once together, you were never to be separated. That's what the marriage vows say. And when people write their own vows, I see to it that those parts are in it. But most of the time, I don't have to because they understand it. Those that write their vows almost always know exactly what marriage means. And shouldn't they? I remember I told one couple one time, listen, choose wisely. That's all I'm saying. Because they had both been through several marriages and divorces, and I said, if you really want to get married this time, make sure you choose wisely. Amen? They didn't, by the way. In a marriage, you do what's necessary to understand one another. You're loyal. Loving, caring, protecting, and nurturing of the other. And you seek to understand versus to be understood. How many of you heard me tell you that? Mm -hmm. You put the other before yourself and everything. And that's hard to do sometimes. Because, again, we're not taught that way. And, friends, you're trying to be closer to the other every single day. You get to a point where you might be able to Finish one another's sentences. Uh, and strangely, you can mimic one another's thoughts. And some people say you start to look like each other too. I don't know if that's true, but hey, it would be to my advantage if that were true. Thanks, Shelly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. But, but you know, friends... Uh, I realize that the institution of marriage has been grossly cheapened in modern times. And I know that it has been mocked by human practices, okay, such as same-sex and divorce. That's a, that's a mockery. Yet I also know that Jesus gave grounds for divorce for certain things. But he, he didn't just throw it out there and say, hey, whenever you want, whenever you didn't get along. And I've known some wise people who came to me and said, you know, uh, my daughter and son-in-law are struggling. And every time they have a fight, she'll run home. What should I do? And I tell them if, if it's a volatile fight, you tell her, okay, you spend the night and tomorrow you go home to your husband, you work it out. Yeah? Now, should somebody stay in a volatile situation where there's, you know, where they're duking it out? No, of course not. 
then neither am I saying that anybody should stay in an abusive relationship. But there are things that we, we can do to help that, and you've got to get people help for that. And there are oodles of things we can do. So divorce really, friends, is a last resort and has to be for good reason. And even then, Paul says, I don't know if that's really grounds. Paul said, you, you should still work it out. The Bible emphasizes working on differences regardless of what they are and keeping our marriage together. And listen, every single one of us has had a fight in our marriage, I promise you. And sometimes we've contemplated leaving. Yeah? But it's better when we don't. And I've seen marriages that were destined for the scrap heap become the most amazing marriages you could have because it took the attitudes of the people to change. But you see, we're a more self-centered society today than we've ever been, and this is why most marriages are failing and why they end in divorce. And yet Paul uses the same example for Christ in the church, and this, this is why I wanted to hit this thing hard and home about the human institution of marriage that God's put together. I want you to understand how we're doing it and realize that Paul models one off of the other. You see, we, we are the bride of Christ, the church is. And what would happen, friends, if the bride of Christ would te- treat the bridegroom and the institution of marriage between us and Christ the same way society treats the institution of marriage in humanity? You, you see the point here? This, you know, this is what I'm trying to get you to understand because that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. In fact, relationships of human marriage are actually secondary to the lessons of Christ in the church because that's what Paul says. Notice the beginning of verse 23. Paul teaches human relationships as secondary to the relationship of Christ in the church. In fact, he says, you ought to be a husband and a wife in this way just as Christ is with the church. So, Christ and the church are the example. Spirituality is the example to the human marriage, not the other way around. But he uses the two as examples together. You see, this way, Christ and his relationship with the church prove that his spiritual relationship is superior. And the only way we actually have an example of what our human relationships ought to be in order to survive and do it right. And so having said that, there's a couple things I want to call your attention to. Number one, Christ is the head of the church. I, I, think, I think everybody knows that. I think everybody believes that, but we don't always prove it, you see. There's the problem. We would say it, but we won't actually live it. You know why? Because we want to be the head of the church. Everybody in here wants to be the head of the church. Every Christian I've ever known wanted to be the head of the church. You know why? Because we want to interpret the Scripture the way we want to and live life the way we think a Christian ought to be versus going in the Word and finding out what it is and then doing it. We all have an opinion about what it is. And you'll say, no, 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 we don't. I do read the Scripture. Yeah, but here's the thing. You will interpret it in a way that suits you. Or this sounds good. You know how I know it? Because I see people doing it all the time. And yes, sometimes I've probably done it. I'd like to think it's an awful lot less than it used to be. 
the closer to him I get. Anybody with me here? So you have to understand that Christ is the head of the church, and he has every right to be the head. And some people, believe it or not, in society are questioning his authority to be the head of the church. I hear it all the time. And so why does Christ have the right to be the head of the church? Well, first, because God gave him that authority. God the Father gave Christ the Son the authority. In fact, we find out in Ephesians 1, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. That's, Paul says so. And friends, I began to think about that some. I thought, you know, when you're appointed as a head of something, well, you're, you've been given authority over it. Haven't you? Now, it's possible that there might be certain restrictions. I get that. Or maybe you won't have power over certain areas or certain people. But clearly, God has given Jesus complete authority for the Bible says over everything. So, as I began to think about that, I said, well, so what happens then in an organization when someone has been given complete authority over it and then somebody else who's in the organization takes it upon themselves to make decisions or behave in a manner that isn't their decision to make or their place to decide? What happens? Well, you've seen it time and again. Well, a couple things are going to happen. One, there's probably going to be a warning. Somebody's going to bring them in and say, look, <laughs> you don't get to make that call. Okay? You do your job and let me do mine. I'm the one that makes those decisions. The second time, it might be a little harsher. They might say, well, you're going to get a couple days off here. There's a suspension in, in, your, in, your, in, your, in your future. And sometimes there won't be a next time. If there is, probably termination. Okay? Why? Because that's your call. I can tell you. Do it in the military and see what happens. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't aspire to leadership, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't make decisions. See, because we're, we're creating a society that doesn't want to make decisions because they're afraid of the consequences. But nevertheless, somebody's got to make them, okay? Now, if a person makes a decision that it wasn't really their decision to make, but they have a good reason for it, 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 it might fly based on extenuating circumstances. But some people do it just because they want to control things, because they want it their way, and they're insubordinate. <laughs> now, every one of us has worked for somebody that we didn't think was a very good boss or leader. Yeah? Haven't we? Believe me when I tell you. Okay? I've done it many times, but they're still my leader. But somehow in the church, we believe that we can do just that. And somehow we believe that we can think and do whatever we want and then claim grace to do it. Have you ever thought about that? And you know what, friends? We're, we're doing it every day or we see, we're seeing it every day. I'm thinking, can you see why Paul is reminding us about this then? Can you see why he's writing this to us? And a second reason that Christ is the head is because Christ gave himself up for the church. He gave himself up for it. Now, that's a vested reason, don't you think? If anybody gave all they were and all they had for something, it was Jesus Christ. Why? Because the church was his and still is. In fact, all that God has to show for the death of Christ is the church. 
Now, I really want you to understand that for a minute. This, this stunned me when the Holy Spirit brought this thought to my mind. Because we look at Christ as having everything. Yes. But all he has to show for his death on the cross is the church. He, he, he gave his complete all just for the church and nothing more. So whatever it is, that, or whatever it becomes, that's what he has to show for his death on the cross. Is that amazing or what? It puts new responsibility in my heart, see. If I'm going to be part of the church, I better give Christ something to show for it. Amen? That's just the way it is. Because this is all he's got. He gave up everything just for this. There wasn't anything else that came with it. Just the church. For whatever it was, whatever it could be, and whatever it becomes. And so you have to remember that. And I thought, seriously, this is true. The church was purchased with His blood. Listen to Luke's own words in Acts chapter 20. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. So whatever the church is today, whatever it is, whatever the perception is, whatever it's become, that's all He has to show for what He's done. Wow. And let's face it, it could be better, couldn't it? You see, Christ did give himself for it, but he was glad to give all that he, he, he had to give because the church is all he has to show for it. And if only one person got saved and that person was all he had to show for his death on the cross, he still would have done it. If only one person said yes, he would still do it. He would have given his life for that one. But as it is, many choose to follow him, including all of us here today, and I'm grateful that we have. It's not just one, it's many. And many before us, and I'm hoping many after us will do it. And if somebody here today hasn't made that decision, then make it now. Make it now. And the church is what it is and always will be what it is because Christ gave of himself for it. And that's why the church is the fullness of Christ. That's what Paul was talking about. Christ gave his all, which means his fullness is in it. But more than that, he redeemed everyone, whether, whether they accept it and become a part of the church or they don't. Yes, that's right. Paul, redeemed, or Paul says that Christ redeemed everyone out there, whether they choose the church or not. That means the people on either side of the church, people behind it, people across the street, people in your neighborhood, on your street, down your road, in your workplace, in your school, your neighbors, your friends, those who have never made a decision for Christ. Yes, he died for them. Yes, he did. It doesn't mean anything until they accept him, but he still died for them. Yes? Okay? Now, here's the thing. When they do accept it, we have people from every background, every creed, belief, color, nationality, any, everything you can think of. They're all part of the church, see? That was a struggle for Paul in his day and those people. For us, not quite as bad. But let's face it, there's a lot of divides in our nation today, even in the church. Do you know that there are certain issues that will divide the church? And they shouldn't. Our politics shouldn't divide the church. And our social, societal ideals should not divide the church, but they are. 
That's sad. When you can get Christians to smile and love on each other and gather together, then you talk about politics and they separate like that. What's wrong? I'm serious. What's wrong? Well, Christ isn't the head. That's what's wrong. We're, we're pushing it him down the line, and we're putting our politics and our ideals up here. See, aren't we? You can say that's not happening, but I'm telling you, can you explain it any other way? Now, listen, you and I can agree to disagree. I get that. But Christ is still always the head, and that's what binds us, isn't it? Otherwise, we have a church. Did you hear me? If he's not the head, we don't have a church. We call it a church, but it isn't the church. I'm going to get back to that here in a few minutes. But the fact is, we all have different skills and abilities, and we're all part of the church, which is the fullness of Christ. Why? Because all of us are necessary, and none is greater than another. That's what Christ said. So let's talk more about how he gave himself up. First of all, what did he give? His life? Yeah. But more importantly, his blood. All of it. For the church and only for the church. You see, he, he didn't shed his blood for anything but the church. That's what he gave his all for. None of his blood went to purchase anything but the church. And this is why the church is all he has to show for it. You see, even though Jesus redeemed everybody, not everybody accepts it. Well, we said that just a minute ago. Isn't that right? Not everybody accepts it. And if they don't, then they aren't part of the church, which means his spilled blood is worthless for them. It only becomes something when they accept. Agreed? Now, the fact is, people want to claim that everyone is saved even if they don't accept Christ and follow him. And that just simply is not true. You know it's not true because the Bible says it isn't true. And until they do, they cannot be part of the church. If you're saved, you're part of the church. If you aren't saved, you're not part of the church. And I don't care if you attend some church every single Sunday or every time it's open. If you haven't gotten saved, you're not part of the church, regardless of how often you go to church. That's just the way it is, friends. And I shouldn't have to teach this. Nobody should have to say it. Because those that understand it know that that's true. But if that's the case, then we need to know and understand what the church is. You see, I could go along there. I could start here with Pastor Chris and go all the way back up and down, and I could ask you, what is the church? And I would get a different answer for everybody. Because to people, the church is what they get out of it. It's what they like. It's what they want. It's their preferences in church, how they feel about it, yeah? That's, that's what constitutes a church to most people. That's not what Christ said a church is. That's not what the Acts said a church is. That's not at all. And that's why we have a problem identifying as a church today. Because we've gotten away from what church is meant to be. It's become the music and the worship and the feeling that I get. President Kennedy had it right. He said, don't ask what your country can do for you, but rather what you can do for your country. And people embraced that and they clapped. And they said, great, you say that to people today? Not so much. Because we want our country to do for us. And if we want our country to do for us, don't you think we want to see what the church can do for us too? I assure you, people go to church not for what they can give it, but what they think they can get out of it. Yes or no? How many of you believe that's probably true? How many of you have done that before? Isn't that how you chose a church in the first place? That's how most people do. That's not 
what it's designed to be. It isn't what the Bible states. It isn't certainly the truth, but that's what it's become. And therein lies the problem. Therefore, we have to know what a church is. What constitutes the church? Is it a building with a name on it that says it's a church? Well, maybe. But that doesn't make it part of the church now, does it? A congregation of people of various beliefs and practices can be considered a church. But that doesn't make them part of the church. Because if they aren't completely Bible-believing and Bible-practicing, then they aren't part of the church, regardless of what's on the front door or on the sign. And if it is a church, it's not Christian. Amen? You see, the church, friends, has a set of standards, a certain set of standards that are handed down by our maker who appointed Jesus as the head of the church. In fact, the head of the church has commanded us to think, speak, and behave in a particular manner, friends, and get this, that is not pleasing to us, but pleasing to the Father. We're to be what pleases the Father, not each other, not society, not ourselves. We're not here to do that. Mind you, that's our goal and God says, I will give you everything you want. But all you have to do, but you, you have to surrender first. You surrender and please me first. And if you please me, I assure you, you'll be pleased. Now, not very many Christians live that way, you see. Because they don't want to wait for pleasure. They, they don't want to give up what they think pleasure is to get what God says it is. And those who do find out, and they would never go back to the other way. But sadly, very few do it anymore. And friends, if we're going to be part of the church, this is exactly what we're going to have to do. We'll be obedient because we're under the head. Which means we will be insubordinate. We won't try to compromise the standards. And we won't try to make up our own rules and standards of Christianity that suit us. Because that's what people do. Remember what happens to organizations or in organizations where that happens? Maybe a warning, maybe a punishment, and eventually termination. Well, friends, there are people out there, Christians, who think that there's no, going to be no termination. That's false. <laughs> I assure you, Christ said there's going to be a termination of people that refuse to be obedient. But we don't want to believe that today because we're all about love and mercy and grace. Yeah, me too. But there's going to be judgment. Isn't there? Doesn't the Bible say there's going to be judgment? Well, what do you think that is? Termination for some. Who thought they were doing it right? That's why he gives us the distinction between the sheep and the goats. And I often wonder if there's going to be more goats than there are sheep. In fact, the Bible's clear that there will be. And you know what? Almost nobody identifies with the goats. They think they're all going to be sheep. But I think that some people's going to be surprised that they're getting... You know, the shepherds push them over with the ghost. They'll be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. No, 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 no. You, you, you don't understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, I do. No, 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 you don't. And you never did. In fact, and then they're going to press the issue. You're going to say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. And they're going to go, what? I think there's going to be some people that are clueless, have no idea. And you know what? There are still Christians out there today that think that's never going to happen, even though it says it. They, they even argue with me and say, Christ would never do that. 
He said he was going to do it. Didn't he? You see, he gets to set the standards because he's the head. We don't. And he purchased the church that makes it his. So when he purchased the church, what exactly did he purchase? I mean, what did he really purchase? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23, Paul says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. He says it twice. You were, you were bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies and don't become slaves of human beings. So, here's the deal in a nutshell. He bought people who considered collectively are called the church. That's you and me. Anybody who's in the Christian church, that's who he purchased. He didn't purchase the Muslim church. He didn't purchase the Mormon church. Right? He didn't purchase the church of Buddha. No. And if you know Mormons who think they're Christian, rock on. They're not. And people get angry at me. They're good people. Yes, they are. But their theology is doctrinally flawed. And I can show you how. Tons and tons of times. They're not Christian. They're cult. Believe me. And when people tell me, you know, that Jehovah's Witnesses are Christian. No, they're not. They do a lot of good things. In fact, they're better at, at, at their brand of whatever it is than we are. They're more devoted, I can tell you. So are the Mormons. I love, the way how, I love how devoted these, these groups are. We could be better. But they're not Christian. And if that offends you, well, I would rather offend you now and prove it to you so you have some kind of influence on those folks that are not going to make it. Okay? Because they don't believe the message of Jesus Christ. Neither one of them do. Neither one of them claim Christ is superior. Neither one of them claim Christ to be the Son of God. Did you know that? Okay. And doesn't, doesn't that kind of destroy your brand of Christianity if he's not? Okay. So, so what do we do with this? Well, <laughs> he says we're to honor God with our bodies and submit to God's authority, not human authority. That means we're to honor the institution of marriage and sexual union based on what God says it is, not what mankind wants it to be. Amen? Isn't that it? The only question is, are we? What do you think? You see, people want seem to want to believe that there are other ways to be part of God's kingdom, like just being human or in behavior by being a good person. I've heard that time and again. Time and time again. But more importantly, friends, human standards aren't God's standards. How many of you have figured that out yet? Who's, who's figured out that human standards are not God's standards? You know how I learned? The hard way. I thought I understood what being a Christian was. And then I got in the Word and found out that what I thought was wrong. Oh, it seemed right for a long time. It felt good too. But it wasn't. It wasn't right. And the more I get into the Word, the more I find that my human thinking wants to veer away from it if I don't spend time in it. Anybody? And sometimes it's subtle. And then sometimes you learn these things and you thought, oh my goodness, I've been to Word a lot. And I still got that wrong. 
Anybody? Yeah, that's called spiritual growth, see? But the Word doesn't lie, it never has. And if you're in there, you're going to know it. Anybody? You see, that's, that's it. And, and if, if we're going to live in human standards and realize that they're not God's standards, you see, we don't even know what good is. The Bible says we don't, Jesus said, you don't know what good is. Why do you call me good? Only the Father is good. Because we have a wrong sense of good. You know why? Because the enemy wants to tell you this is good. And a lot of times you'll experience it and say, yeah, that's pretty good. And God says, no, it isn't. Every single drug addict I've ever known, when they shot up, said, oh, that's good. And when they came down off it, man, that's not good at all. Huh? But the enemy's like, yeah, it's good. Go ahead, do it. Oh, you want it. I know you do. My question is, why do you want it? What's it going to do for you? Because whatever it does for you is temporary. It always has been. Every single good thing the enemy offers you is temporary. Every single one of them. Everyone. The only thing that's eternal is Christ. That's the only eternal thing we can bank on, friends. But more importantly, there's only one way to be part of God's family, and that's through the Son in Jesus Christ. That's it. No matter what anybody else says, no matter what they believe or what they teach, that's the only way. And if the religious entity or authority or church or whatever you want to call it is teaching anything different than they're not Christian, period. And that's how you know. It may look like Christian, it may act like Christian, it may claim Christian, but they're not. You see, he purchased us. That's the only way this works. The thing purchased must be of equal value with the purchase price since he gave himself for the church. Its value must equal his. And if people think they're saved without the church, then they were saved without the blood. You understand that? And if they're saved outside the church, they were saved outside of Christ. Guess what? Then they're not saved. Because without the blood and without the Christ, you cannot be saved. That's it. End of story. It is not possible. You know what the problem is? People don't want to believe that. They want an alternative method because society has taught them, because the devil has, that there's always an alternative method. And God says, no, no, there isn't. So it really depends on what you believe. More importantly, what you'll do. And I hope and pray that every single one of you in here today chose the blood and the life of Jesus Christ and realize that that's the only way. So let's move, let's move on a little bit more. He gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it. I think that, I think that is absolutely stunning. Let me explain that to you. He says everybody has to be cleansed and sanctified. I actually had uh, some, some guys, uh, uh, I, I did... Uh, 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 the uh, fifth talk at Emmaus one time in a, in a Emmaus group and uh, it had a sanctifying grace and this is no kidding two of these guys in, in, a, in a church a, a Christian church came up to me and said we don't use those terms in our church and I said 
Well, the Bible does. And they didn't believe me. I actually had to show them. They said, it must be the version you're using. I said, really? Really? What? What happened? Friends, you can't just go by what your church leadership teaches you. In fact, no matter what I teach you, no matter what my pastoral staff teaches you, no matter what my Sunday school teachers teach you, no matter what our doctrine says, the fact is you have responsibility to go into the Word and test it. You have responsibility, and I invite you, I more than that, I implore you, I beg of you, go in there and test it. And if what I'm saying, what they're saying isn't biblical, by all means, please come and tell us about it. Please come. And, and usually it's just a misunderstanding. Sometimes it's a play on word. But either way, let's face it. If a pastor is teaching heresy, shouldn't we call him out on it? Okay. Everybody's got to be cleansed and sanctified. Such cleansing and sanctifying is by, get this, the washing of water with the word. That's what he said. It's the washing of water with the word. The washing of water with the word. Now I want you to ingrain, I want you to say it. It's the washing of water with the word. Because there are people out there in other denominations, in other churches going to tell you something different. And I'm telling you, that's not what he says. You cannot get saved just by water baptism. Period. Getting water baptized doesn't make you saved. In fact, getting a water baptism, friends, okay, what that is, is an indication of your salvation. You've made the decision already. You're just doing it in front of the public to say you've done it. That's all that is. Now, was it commanded? Yes. Are we commanded to be baptized? Absolutely. What about the person on the deathbed can't get baptized? I would say they're still saved. But there are some denominations that say, nope, nope. Really? Then what do you do with the thief on the cross then? Because he wasn't baptized. Huh? Was there a special provision? What did they do? Bring him down and dunk him after he's dead? I don't think so. But if you refuse to get water baptized, then you're disobedient. And I think the Bible seems to indicate to me that as soon as you can, as soon as it's expedient, you should do it. And it's obedience, isn't it? But listen, water baptism alone does not save you. It's the outward appearance of the inward work. Something's already taking place. Yeah? And when they say that it says you have to be baptized, yeah, you know why? Because God wants you to take a stand publicly for Him. That's what that means. It means to, you, you have to do it because you said you belong to Him. And you want everybody to know it. Yeah, that's what it is. And, and why would you not want to do Why would we want to deny Christ when we've taken Him, accepted Him? I wouldn't. Okay. But here's the thing, friends. Is it possible that some people have been baptized and were never actually saved? Yes. Absolutely. You see, true conversion is proven not by the water baptism, friends, but by obedience to the Word that saved you in the first place. That's what he says. That's why he says baptism with the Word. 
The Word is what baptizes you. That's what compels you. That's what changes you. That's what changes your demeanor, your obedience, your whole life. Getting dunked in the tank isn't going to change you, but inhaling the Word will. Anybody? Huh? Who knows that for a fact? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, <laughs> the Bible not only says it, if you truly love Christ, what will you do? According to Him, you'll obey His Word. If, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do this. You see, this, this is what proves the heart change. And your obedience to the Word means that you'll get the water baptism because it's commanded. It's in the process, you see. But obedience is and always has been the key to your salvation, the cleansing and the sanctification. In fact, you can't become sanctified any other way. And you can't be sanctified if you're not obedient. It's impossible. John 15, 3 and 17, 19 say this. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. See, that's what cleansed you. Jesus himself said it. The word was what cleansed you, nothing else. The word I've spoken to you, that is your cleansing. For I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. That's obedience. In other words, you not only got to learn the word, you got to advance in it. You got to start incorporating it into your life because you can't be sanctified if you're not doing it. It is not enough to get saved and stay there. In fact, you may well lose it if you do. Now, I know these are harsh words, and I know people don't want to believe it. But it aren't my words, they're his. Right there they are. And I've had pastors argue with me till the cows come home. And the cows never did come home. They cannot prove me wrong because they can't prove the Scripture wrong. Again, you can believe whatever you want to believe. But in the end, what does the Bible say? You see, Jesus is clearly saying that the Word is what does both things. It not only saves, it sanctifies. But the Word does nothing for anyone who doesn't read it, who doesn't study it, and who doesn't obey it. Having a Bible on your shelf, friends, is absolutely worthless. They look nice. They're impressive for people to see them. But what good are they? And it will remain worthless unless you take it down, open it, and read it. Right? That's just common sense. I used to get to the point where I, I had all, and I still got a collection of books over there, but I'm getting to the point that I look at those books and I've got people that I'll be reading them. What are they doing on my shelf? Nothing. So I offer them to Pastor Chris and anybody who wants to read, you want to read a book on my shelf? Come get it. I don't even care what it is because they're not that important to me. I've read them. I can't do much with them now. Sometimes it's good to go back and reference them, but I would rather they be in the hands of people that they could help. Books were written for what? Yeah, there's the thought. But reading is worthless unless you live it. You can take in all the knowledge you want, but unless you do something with it, for what? You see, there's no cleansing without the washing. There's no washing without the word and the water. And there's no sanctification without both unless water baptism isn't possible for one reason or another. And no salvation without the whole of it. And those that do it are and make the church. 
those who get saved, those who are obedient, and those who get on the path toward sanctification and entire sanctification, which begins at salvation, by the way, those who continue that, that's what makes up the church. It always has, it always will. You see, this is the process that saves a person and connects him or her to the church, which is called the bride of Christ. Christ only has one bride. We're it. There's only one. And the church is it. For better, for worse, whatever it is, whatever it will become, that's his bride. Everybody I've ever known wanted to marry this beautiful, amazing, incredible woman to be, to be their bride. Yeah, guys? Yes or no? He didn't go out and choose somebody that wasn't. Right? And, you know, sometimes <laughs> beauty truly is in the eye of a beholder. I get that. But here's the deal. What do we look like? What exactly is the bride of Christ? Are we, a, are we an adorning group? Or are we just kind of so-so? Well, it matters. <laughs> it matters to him. Just like it would matter to you. God wants the very best bride he can have for his son. And you know something else I found? Christ does not practice spiritual polygamy. And neither can the bride. But we are. Because we have many gods. You see, whatever is important to us gets, becomes our priority. Whatever it is, whatever is important to you in your life, that's what becomes your priority every time. And I want you to be honest with yourself because God's asking you, is he really at the top of the list? You might say it. You might even actually believe it. But my guess is your life doesn't necessarily prove it. We've got to be honest with ourselves, don't we? You see, friends, Christ taught that from the beginning, one man was made for one wife, Matthew 19, 8. And it's true that the bride of Christ is the same. If all churches and denominations and teachings are his, then he violates his own teaching. Did you hear me? If every church out there, every denomination, every teaching really belongs to Christ, then he's violated his own teaching. You know why? Because those who refuse to follow his work completely cannot be his bride. That's why. It's not possible. That's why Jesus said, test the spirits. That's why Paul said, test the spirits. There's an awful lot of churches out there that are teaching things that go contrary to this. And I don't care what version they've got. Like I said before, pick the one you'll read. They're all accurate. They're all accurate. But you can't pick and choose what you're going to believe, and you can't tear out pages that you don't like. And you would be appalled if I did that. And you know what? But when we refuse to teach the truth, that's exactly what we're doing. I am to teach, when I've got called to be a minister, I'm to teach the entirety of this book right here. And you, I don't think this group would want a pastor that didn't. I don't. But I think there's churches that do. In fact, I know there's churches that tell the pastor, don't touch those subjects. Really? Did God call you to pastor that church? Boy, that's sick, isn't it? That's Satan, friends. That's the devil all day. Why won't we call that out? Because we're afraid of stepping on somebody's toes? Afraid of offending somebody? I would rather offend someone and give them the truth so they can get saved. Or know what the truth is and live it. Wouldn't you? 
Because otherwise, what are we doing? We're condemning. <laughs> we're condemning people when we won't tell them the truth. And we're condemning them when we won't hold them accountable to the truth. If you're going to say you're a Christian, then live like it. Believe like it. Because it's in there. And if I won't call it out when they don't, I'm condemning them. And the Bible says, God's going to hold me just as responsible. That's how I read it. Anybody else read it that way? Read it that way. Come on. Because that's what it says. Do we think that somehow by osmosis it won't happen? Or there's going to be something happen that, well, you know. No. You see, he's the savior of the body. He saves presently. He saves eternally. And there isn't any other way. And if the body isn't his, then it isn't completely obedient. And if it isn't completely obedient, then it isn't his. You can't be obedient if you're not his. Because you won't be. And if you are, you have to be. Isn't that what the Bible says? Let's finish this up. The church is a glorious bride of Christ. Let me give you some great examples here. The cleansed and sanctified church is his glorious bride. Have you ever known a child that hadn't taken showers or baths? Anybody? Ever known anybody? Maybe it wasn't a child. Maybe it was an adult that did it. Hated taking showers or baths. Now, you know, friends, I have to tell you, to me, there isn't really anything more gross than being sweaty, dirty, and nasty and crawling into bed. I can't do it. Now, I hope I didn't offend anybody because probably somebody did. I can't do it. I mean, if I'm out, listen, I can't even start my day without taking a shower. Something is not right if I don't. I don't care if I'm going to go out and work on dirty stuff. I still have to take a shower. I, I, that's me. Okay? I can't crawl to bed and run to work. I can't do it. I won't do it. I'll be late before I'll do it. I'm telling you. That's how I get started. But, that, you know, I'm not here to talk about hygiene. But here's the deal. Okay? I, you know, when I see people that can literally be nasty, sweaty, and sweat-soaked, and, 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 and how do you crawl into the sack without cleaning? Isn't there just something wrong about that? Right? Am I the only one who thinks that? Because if it is, my points are, are they're, they're done. Well, here's the thing. I think that's exactly spiritually what some are trying to do. You see, not only does Christ have to wash our sins away, we have to look differently than we did before. And let me explain that. You know, I've seen people who are going to an event and you went to clean up, and then after they cleaned up, they didn't look any different. Anybody, right? Right? I mean, I've seen guys that you know, took off their dirty overalls, combed their hair, and put on a different pair of overalls. They look any different, right? And some of them put on the same overalls. Right? I mean, it's sort of like taking a shower and then putting on your dirty, stinky, soiled clothes back on again. I, I think a lot of Christians do that. I think we get cleansed and put our old clothes back on again. And I think, are you really clean? Well, maybe to a point. I mean, you're clean inside, maybe, but you don't appear clean. You really don't. You don't appear clean. Why? Because nothing has really changed externally. And if you're cleaned inside, don't things ex don't they change to the outside? Doesn't that exchange? Of course it does. I mean, if, if you're really washed, you're going to want to put on clean robes that Jesus talks about in Revelation. He says you're going to have white robes, brand new and clean. Yes or no? 
That's, that's how you're presented. I am not going to be presented in dirty overalls. I'm telling you right now. And neither should you want to be. In fact, not only are you clean, but you look it. And neither can we put on clean clothes on a dirty body. I think some people are trying to do that too. They're trying to clean all up and look good. But nothing's really changed on the inside. You might look clean at first, but your aroma is going to give you away. Isn't it? It doesn't take long. Right? You see, you, you can't be part of the church unless you're both cleansed and sanctified, friends. Which means the process of sanctification, again, has to have begun. And it has to continue. We can't be cleansed, sanctified, and added to the church and become part of this bride any other way. And it doesn't matter what anybody says. You can't do it. He says husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. You know, the most intimate of all human relationships is used to illustrate the closeness of the relationship of Jesus Christ and His church. He says, nobody ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, just as Christ also does the church. And to me, clearly what Paul is saying is the same thing all married women will say. If you really love me, you're going to show me. I, I, I can't tell you how many couples have said that to me. You know, well, so-and-so says they love me, but I, I don't see it. And so I have to ask them a question. What, what, what would so-and-so have to do to make you know that you're loved by them? Isn't that a fair question? Now, you guys should go home and use that on each other, aren't you? That's okay. You go ahead. Right on. It was Valentine's Day, you know. Okay. I asked people another question. What would God have to do to prove to you He's real? What would He have to do to prove to you He loves you? What would God have to do to prove to you He cares and that He wants to have this relationship? What would He have to do? It's the same question we ask each other, you know? You know, if you love your wife, you're going to show her. She's become part of you, not a separate person. You'll love her as much or more than you love yourself. Let's face it, we're all self-preservationists, <laughs> aren't we? So it has to become natural to us to love and nurture our wives and for wives to do the same toward their husbands. For this is exactly how Christ loves the church, and He expects us to do the exact same thing back toward Him. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? A question. If God is giving us all things, what are we giving for Him? Hmm? Isn't this supposed to be a two-way thing? Or are we in the habit of just taking and taking and taking and giving nothing back to God? See how long that goes in a marriage. Hmm? I've seen marriages with that. doesn't go far. Somebody's malcontent. Right? And I've known... Some poor gals that have come to me and said, he, he doesn't do anything. And I, until he does, nothing can change. And it sometimes goes the other way, too. But if God is giving us all things, what are we giving him? Isn't he demanding all things from us? Sure he is. He's demanding all of you, isn't he? If you become his, aren't you fully his? Because if you're not fully his, you're not his. I mean, if you're, if you're not fully your husband's or you're not fully your wife's, then you're not theirs. 
Yeah? You're, you're playing the field. You're, you're doing other things. If you say you're going to be a fully a Christian, then what's got your attention in time? Is it the church or is it something else? You see, we prioritize the church and our, and our relationship with Christ down the line somewhere. We always have. It's got to be at the top of the heap, friends. It's got to start there. And you will never catch up and defeat the devil's advances until you put Christ there, until you put the church there, until you put your, your spiritual awareness and your Christianity there. I don't care what your kids have to do. I don't care what you have to do. That still has to be at the top of the heap. And if it isn't, then you're playing a game, mostly with yourself. And it gets to the point you don't even feel good about it anymore because you know. I know that because I've been there. Anybody with me? To want more? If you want more of Christ, can you not have it? Who, who he, has he ever held out on? If you want more, you'll get it. Are we giving all of ourselves to him? You see, Paul drives this point home with the closeness of the relationship. A person leaves their father and mother and, and cleaves to the spouse. The two should become one. In the same manner, Christ and the Christian, get this, become one. We are one with Christ. Doesn't Paul say that? Our thoughts, our beliefs, our purposes, our behavior, our attitudes, and our love is the same as that of our Christ. Are they? It isn't that hard to figure out. Every single one of you in here knows today if it is or not. You don't have to go evaluate and think about it. You know. You know right now. And some of us are going to say, well, some weeks are good and some weeks not so good. Some days are pretty good and some days not so good. I struggle. Yeah. Sure you do. You know why? Because the devil wants you to struggle. That's his whole design, to make you struggle. Who are you married to? As our worship team comes, understand that the church is His glorious bride. As at the bride of Christ, we are cleansed, we are sanctified, we are holy, we are obedient, we are loyal, and we are true to Him and Him alone. And if anything else gets in the way of that, you are not. Therefore, we are to be separated from the rest of society, which is ruled by Satan. It just is. I know people will dispute it, but I'm telling you, society is ruled by Satan. Jesus said he was a ruler of this age. Yes or no? So who do you think is ruling it? Good people, unsaved, are ruled by Satan. Period. And if you're not fully belonging to Christ, you're ruled in some manner by Satan. Period. Not my words, his. There they are. Okay? So... Since Christ is the head over us, He loves us, He cherishes us, He nurtures us. In fact, He died for us. In fact, He wants this marriage to be everything you want and more. He desires to give you everything that you need in life. He wants to love you, protect you, be a friend to you, uplift you, get you through things, a shoulder to cry on, a shoulder to lean on. Everything you could possibly ever want in life, He wants to be it. In fact, he will be a better spouse than any human ever could. Just like he's a better parent than any of us ever could be. Do you understand? Because he loves us more than we can even possibly fathom. And it shows based on what he did. So today, who do you belong to? Not just in 
I believe in Christ, but who are you married to? Because even though the wedding hasn't taken place yet, <laughs> either you're in the marriage or you're going to be one of those 10 who had to go fill their lamps and missed it. Don't. Begin today and know who it is that you belong to. Are you married to Christ or are you married to this life and to this society? It's up to you.